Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Debate number 31, and the nature of our debate is going to be, what is the vehicle for progress in the world? And we're going to open up that conversation beyond just one prism. But the first lens we're going to look at that through is this debate about the role of the state, the role of the state as the primary Jewish vehicle for progress versus the Jewish tradition itself. Let's start with a poll where we can cast some votes. Progress is best achieved through individual growth, communal outreach, national impact, or global unity. Okay, beautiful. So how is progress achieved on the individual level, on the communal, on the national, or on the global level? Of course, through, of course, they're all true. But what is your theory of progress ultimately? Okay, when we have results, we can, we can put them up. The results show uh, that 75% voted individual growth, that progress is best achieved through individual growth, 25% said communal outreach, and zero said national impact or global unity. Okay, very interesting. That reminds me of the famous Rabbi Yisrael Salanter story where um, he says, first I tried to change the world and I realized I couldn't, so I tried to change my community. And then I realized I couldn't, so I tried to change my family. And then I realized I couldn't, so now I just try to change myself. Um, and so, um, yeah, how does global transformation occur? Okay, friends, let's launch in here to a short presentation, and then we will open up the conversation. So how might Jews define progress? And once we've defined that, how we measure progress, our metric of success, what are our best vehicles for achieving that progress? When Jews have been powerless, we could hope and dream that God or Mashiach would come to intervene with power, or perhaps in some mystical way that our performance of mitzvot 
we're transforming the world. That the shoemaker who has kavanot, who has spiritual intentionality while making shoes, is in some humble but bold way changing the world. Today, when Jews have access to more power than ever before in history, with Israeli sovereignty and with American Jewish security, new questions emerge about how we influence the world. For some, we still change the world through our obedience to Jewish tradition, right? If you ask the, a Haredi Jew in Borough Park or in um, Beit Shemesh, right? They're not gonna say, oh, you should go to Africa and work on sustainable development projects, right? They're gonna say, if I learn Talmud all day, I'm changing the world, right? So there are those Jews who believe that. For others, we can now change the world through universal acts of tikkun olam. Yet still for others, the Medina, the state of Israel is the most powerful vehicle not only for Jewish survival, but for global influence, right? So we laid out three theories so far, the Haredi population of, of strict observance, the Zionist view of the state of Israel as the vehicle of progress, and the universalistic Jew who believes in tikkun olam, repairing the world projects. It is quite amazing to realize, for example, that so many modern technological innovations and inventions were created in Israel. In addition to more yeshivot and midrashot, institutions of higher learning exist today in Israel than in any other time in Jewish history. Secular biblical learning also is experiencing a renaissance with the advent of Bate Midrash study halls, classes and lectures offered by and for non-religious people as well. Written works of several contemporary secular biblical scholars such as Avigdor Shinan Yair Zakovich and Meir Shalev have even become mainstream and are found in many an Orthodox Jewish home. None of this would be transpiring today without Israel being an independent state. As an early religious Zionist, it is not entirely clear that Rav Cook viewed the state itself as the primary vehicle for moral progress. Right? So he is an early adopter of religious Zionism, and yet there's some ambiguity around the role of the state for moral progress for him. What is clear, though, is that he believed that the Jewish people, collectively with sovereignty, living in the Holy Land, is the vehicle for moral progress, the combination together. And that our particular role has a universal impact. And so while halakha, Jewish tradition, has an important role to play in our progress as Jews, it is only true in that the collective Jewish people engage it toward a greater end. Putting it another way, the performance of mitzvot or the study of Torah in a vacuum without viewing that very study and performance as a vehicle to influence and better the world is not progress at all. To be sure, theologies of redemption are very complicated in Jewish thought, and most certainly in the thought of Rav Kook. But it is clear that the return to the homeland and the renaissance of Jewish life is a major part of the progress toward redemption. The state will enable the great gifts of the Jewish people to offer a bright light to the world. 
That's right, Eileen, action stronger than words. So Rob Cook reflects on the relationship between an earlier monarchy and a new democracy. Here's what he writes in Mishpat Kohen. Aside from this, it seems reasonable that at a time when there is no king, these privileges revert to the hands of the nation as a whole, since the prerogatives of monarchy also pertain to the general condition of the nation. In particular, it seems that every judge who arises in Israel has the status of a king as regards several royal prerogatives, particularly those pertaining to governance of the nation. And so the relationship between nationalism and universalism is a complex one. Today, we think of those as opposites. I'm a nationalist. In America, that's like, oh, that's like the worst thing you could be in like a liberal world is a nationalist. You know, like you celebrate the, um, uh, the, 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 the nation at the expense of, the, of the, the broader collective. Or in the conservative world, being a universalist, like you don't celebrate your particular identity, you're just a part of the collective. But in Jewish thought, these two are deeply intertwined, universalism and nationalism. Professor Tamar Ross, who we've, we've been very privileged to have at VBM a few times, she's really wonderful, explains Rav Cook's approach. She's one of the world's leading scholars of, of the thought of Rav Cook. And she writes here in her wonderful essay, the raison d'etre of the Jewish people is to gather all the special qualities that serve to define the respective national characters of the other nations and weld them together as varying expressions of a common moral urge. Rav Cook equates this moral urge with religious faith or the striving for perfection. The unique task of the Jewish people is to harmonize and readjust the mass of expression, expressions of this cosmic urge and form them into a cohesive unity by establishing and enforcing mutual re reciprocation and providing a general spiritual context for a plurality of diverse units. Reflecting the divine unity in this manner, the Jewish people serve as the special instrument of divine revelation. It is in the Jewish people's way of life and creativity that the process of revelation finds its fullest expression. Its purpose is to provide a moral, a model of harmonization on a national scale, the widest scale capable of recognizably bearing the joint experience as necessary to found a common life that will eventually be adopted by humanity at large and obviate the need for nationalism altogether. The world is not yet ready to adopt this cosmopolitan model when it is represented by individuals because in their present form, national groups tend to take over the world and overrun the harmony represented by individuals with their collective competitiveness. Okay, so there's a number of, of unique things here um, that is uh, that are being explored. Um, and firstly, we see um, the idea that Rav Cook believes in stages of progress. He thinks there are ideals that will not be achieved in our time, but are to come later. For example, Rav Cook thought vegetarianism was an ideal, but an ideal to be reserved for the Messianic era because most people can't sustain vegetarianism in the day, in, to, in, in our own day. So too, he says here that nationalism will be surpassed in a kind of global unity. This was kind of the, the global dream in, in some ways 
in post-World War II with the United Nations. Of course, the United Nations is a failed enterprise in this regard as being some kind of you know, successful, you know, cohesive unit of global unity. Um, but, um, but so he does see nationalism as having a crucial role, but also um, ideally being surpassed by this notion of, of human solidarity on the next level. Okay, now Achad Ha'am suggested, his name was Asher Svi Hirsch Ginsburg of the, um, of the early 20th century, Khatam suggested that the nation itself had a collective soul or spirit, which could regenerate with a new halakha in the Zionist era, right? That, that, that the Jewish tradition on the Polish ghettos could not be the same Jewish tradition as it is manifest in the new land of Israel, right? There needed to be a renaissance. So too, the Polish ghetto can't carry over to 21st century America. Right, the questions we're grappling with the, the zeitgeist is so radically transformed that there needs to be a renaissance of how we think about tradition. And so he thinks there's a collective soul or spirit that is that needs to be regenerated. Chaim Nachman Bialik seemed to take a similar approach. Bialik and Achara'am, in many ways, were would be considered secular Jews. <laughs> in many ways, but it's complicated, who view Jewish success and progress through a nationalistic lens. They very much saw Jews having a state as, as progress. The, the notion of a nation state for refugees, right, is progress um, to give those people a home and the idea of self-determination, just as um, many other minority groups have understood their self-determination as, um, as, as a form of progress. Um, and they view Jewish success and progress through this nationalistic lens. Some argue that they, they were thus disenchanting the holy while preserving cultural structures of the past. That is to say, they want a rebirth of Jewish culture and they want to embrace tradition to, to have a renaissance of culture. And some view that as a religious enterprise, and some view that as a disenchanting of the holy to kind of take the flavor. It would kind of like be like, um, it would kind of be like, uh, you know, it would kind of be like, <laughs> I, with no offense to Bialik or Chara'am, it would kind of be like somebody who wants the taste of their Bubby's soup, but wants to put pork into it. It's, it, you know, and that's going a little too far, but. So, oh, don't you love your Bubby's chicken soup? I have her recipe and her, I wanted to taste just like her recipe, but let's put a little pork in there. You know, it's like you want to have your cake and eat it too. You want it to taste really Jewish, like you remember it, but you also want it to just be whatever you want it to be, right? I want to have non-kosher meat or I want to have pork in my soup, but I also want it to feel really Jewish, right? And so I said, okay. So according to some, that's really exciting. I want to have a Jewish cultural experience, not a religious experience. And to other, that's a perversion of, of the tradition, right? That, that if you want to keep Jewish tradition alive, you can't totally um, uproot it. It has to have some integrity and continuity. Such an approach in some ways could be compared to that of Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan of the, um, of really the mid, of the really the mid 20th century here in America, the founder of Reconstructionist Judaism, 
While Bialik celebrates in his own work, Halakha Agada is the Jewish dis- discipline that, uh, excuse me, Jewish discipline that leads to creativity, but not the actual content, the halakha itself, right? So Kaplan argues that what makes Jews great is not the Jewish context, but it's been our discipline. It's kind of like when people say, oh, what's made Jews successful is our commitment to learning. What they're saying is, it's not Jewish wisdom itself that has led to our greatness. It is merely our discipline and our learning, right? Or if someone said, what made immigrants so great was their resiliency. Well, resiliency is just an abstract concept. It means that they didn't bring anything, any unique content with them. It was merely kind of an emotional capacity for grit that they brought with them. And so, um, so a traditionalist would disagree with Kaplan. Uh, what, made Ju- what made Judaism great was not like just our commitment, but was actually the Judaism itself. Whereas Kaplan says it's discipline that made it great. Others contend that Bialik and Achara'am were indeed engaging in a deeply religious project, not merely a cultural or nationalist one. I will leave that debate to the scholars of Bialik and Achara'am. That's as far as I can go in just laying out their debate. So friends, this all emerges from Israel. For Jews in America, right, we, what we've explored so far is this tension of Israeli Jewry. What does global progress look like? Does it look like Israelis flying to Haiti after an earthquake? Does it look like Israelis making peace with, with um, Arab countries? Does it look like Haredim learning Talmud all day? Does it look like Israel being strong as a state? Does it look like medical and technological innovations? What from an Israeli lens is the vehicle towards global progress? And what is the unique Jews role in that? For Jews in America, North America, progress has been measured quite differently, obviously. An old old joke tells of an Israeli hearing an American Jew talking about tikkun olam and asking, how do you say tikkun olam in Hebrew? (laughs) Right? Which is like, it's an old joke, but it's real because... um, American Jews say tikkun olam. Even Jews who know no Hebrew know what tikkun olam means, right? And yet Israelis don't talk about tikkun olam in the same way, right? And so they say, how do you say that in Hebrew? So for many segments of American Jewry, the religious work is not performing mitzvot as an ends in themselves, not about bringing a messianic era and not about nationalism. Rather, it is about tikkun olam, reducing suffering, combating oppression, liberating the confined. Here the focus is not merely on halakha or on the state, but rather on legislation, philanthropy, and education. This would have been so strange to Jews of past centuries. And yet young Jews in particular could have a unique identity to say, I'm not a religious Jew. I'm not particularly a Zionistic Jew. I'm a tikkun olam olam Jew. When I fight for voting rights or I fight for immigrant rights or for feminism or whatever it is, like that is the manifestation of my Judaism. And that is a a radical innovation uh, and yet a fascinating one. Here we see one of the greatest divides between the Israeli mindset and the American Jewry mindset. For many in Israel, 
the state of Israel and all that it represents and produces is the answer. The answer to Jewish role in global progress is what the state of Israel produces. For many North American Jews, it is what we do for others in the secular, even non-Jewish spheres of the diaspora, irrespective of the state of Israel, that is redemptive. For postmodernists, progress is an illusion. Right? Let me remind us of that. How can we witness the horrific bloodshed of the Shoah, of the Holocaust, and claim that we are progressing, they would suggest, right? The 20th century taught us that this illusion of, of consistent progress is one that has to be shattered. Canadian psychologist and author, Professor Steven Pinker, on the other hand, who happens to be Jewish, although he doesn't identify so much as so, believes he can empirically prove that the world is becoming less violent over the centuries. And so if your primary measure of progress is less violence, he would say it is entirely clear that we move to progress. Not, and in our VBM interview with Professor Pinker, he made clear once again that it is not inevitable from progress or Martin Luther King's idea of the arc bends towards progress. It is not inevitable. You have to struggle and strive towards progress, but we will get there, right? For some Jewish traditionalists, we are in a state of Yeridat Hadorot, generational decline. For others, mystics, messianists, and religious Zionists, we are rapidly headed forward toward the ultimate Geula, redemption. So friends, here I'm going to conclude a little early to open our conversation. Jews are a people of hope. We are a people of tikva. We, whether we root our hope in purely halachic observance or in state building or in universalistic acts of justice or in any combination thereof, I'm personally interested in all three, in Jewish traditionalism, in state building and in universalistic acts, but many Jews only want to pick one or pick two. We can be faithful that we are moving forward. We must continue to engage in our holy work to lift up others and create a Kiddush Hashem, a sanctification of God's name in the public sphere. Okay, friends, I'm going to pause there, and I would love to hear from you on how you define progress and what Jewish recipes we have for achieving that progress. In some ways, to me, the state of Israel has complicated this question. It was much easier when we were an oppressed minority to be a champion for minorities and, and, and for the world progression. When we have a state, which many people think and um, is involved in oppression and is dealing with secular, political, and governing um, challenges that, 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 that kind of changes the dynamic. And that's part of maybe, I would assume, the difference between U.S. and, and, um, and Israeli views. Michael, that is a fascinating point. And before we go to Lauren and whoever wants to speak next, let's, let's discuss that a little bit. You know, I think you, um, you raise an important point that 
it is very easy to talk. It's much easier to talk about progress in some in some ways when either you are the most powerful or you are the most disenchanted. The, um, if you are the most vulnerable, you can just blame everyone else out there, out there. Everyone else is an oppressor and I'm the victim. And the progress is when I get the things I want. When I get the things I want, then there's progress, right? I may care about what other people want also, I may not. Many groups only fight for their own stuff, right? And I'm not blaming them. If, you're, if you are um, uh, disenfranchised, it makes sense that you would fight for yourself and for your own people. Others heroically go beyond that and uh, manage to fight for other groups in addition to their own. Um, and if you're the most powerful and you have your own met metric of success as the president of the United States or um, as the head of the UN, and you have many measures of success, you can show how we're addressing malaria and how the GDP, right? and how we're responding to a pandemic, you have ways of showing your progress consistently because you have a lot of power, then it's also easy to talk about progress. But when you are in the middle, and here I put Israel in the middle, you are both a victim um, and you are one with a lot of power and responsibility that comes with that power, uh, things get a lot messier. And this, I believe, is part of maturation. What comes with a nation state is maturation. I, you know, I, 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 I'm not totally sure I'm an adult, but I really, if I am an adult, I became an adult when I became a parent. Yes, when I got a job, I wasn't a parent. Yes, when I lived alone, I wasn't a parent. When I paid my bills, I wasn't a parent. When, I, when my brain reached its actualization of maturation, I wasn't a parent. When I had to be the adult in the room, you know, all day and all night, and make hard decisions as, as that, that's when I felt I became an adult. And in some ways, the Jewish people became adults. We matured when we actually had sovereignty and the responsibility of power, because now your choices, you can't just be a victim in the world. You can't just say the world owes me this and that, and the world is oppressing me, even though it was true. You now have to say, there's a whole bunch of responsibility I have. I'm not just a kid here who was entitled to receiving things from the world. I now have a responsibility as the parent in the room for the people who are my citizens and for our neighbors, whether they like us or not, and for our non-Jewish uh, citizens. And so that is very complicated. And now progress becomes even more difficult to assess and to strive for when I now have that level of responsibility. And so in many ways, we know Israel is thriving. I mean, beyond imagination that a state that is 70 years old is thriving beyond imagination in extraordinary successes. And Israel is struggling beyond imagination, politically and economically and religiously and spiritually and morally um, to actualize its potential. Now, it's not a perfect comparison, but when was uh, America founded? And what would 70 years be after that? Uh, we would just be ending slavery, right? America, think of America mid 19th century. That's about 70 years into America. America had a long way to go in actualizing its progress and actualizing its constitution of equality. Women couldn't even vote still. And so Israel has a long way to go as a baby nation. And yet we have to kind of keep pushing forward. We've come so far and yet have so far to go. And so my, Michael raises a, a great point 
about how this complicates the whole picture. So let's come back to that. But let's go to Lauren, and then we're going to go to um, uh, Dr. Merton, um, Dr. Um, Dr. Merton Show. In Israel, there's places that treat children that are cognitively impaired. There's like amazing, amazing acts of chesed, and people don't talk about it. They would rather rather deal in the anti-Zionist memes instead of really, really realizing the Jewish chesed that is involved in Israel, including among the secular, but there's still a thing of Jewish values. So I, I, I don't think it's an either or, the Jewish Israel is something to be ashamed of, it's something to be proud of. That's and it. my statement was not at all anti-Zionist. It was simply the realities of the situation. And it was not critical of the Jewish state. It was recognition of the challenges of having a Jewish state. Good. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Dr. Merton Schill, you want to weigh in here? Yeah, I apologize. I don't have um, video today. But just to start with your point about being a parent, I've forgotten who it was, but somebody said that the beauty of marriage is not that it produces children, but that it produces adults. Ah. Uh some wise person from about 100 years ago. Anyway, you, you, Rabbi, you made the point early in your presentation about the divide between the Israeli sensibility with regard to, let me say, Jewish values and one's Jewish commitment versus that in the diaspora, particularly the United States. Uh, but it seems to me that there's a commonality here which suggests that you're saying you're, you're um, uh, generalizing perhaps a little bit. If I understand it correctly, the Jewish idea is that God did not complete creation, that Jews are supposed to participate in the completion of creation, which I know is partly what Tikkun Olam is about. So it seems to me that a critical difference between a Jew in America, which is where I am, and a Jew in Israel is that here we don't have the responsibility of creating a state and making that state uh, thrive, where of course, if you're a citizen of Israel, you do. So you have that additional responsibility. But I would assume that there is a way of looking at the activities of the Israeli Jew and the American Jew as both encompassing the idea that one is completing creation, so to speak. So that to take your point in this country, the way one would do that would be, for example, to further civil rights, to fight against racism, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and all the rest of it. But And in Israel, one would do that also in terms of those values as applied internally to Israeli society. So I just wonder what your thought is about that. So Dr. Merton Schill, are, um, are you saying that you think there's more commonality rather than difference between the Israeli and North American Jewish uh, enterprise? Well, I think you have to distinguish between the specific act. Please call me Merton, by the way. <clears throat> I had to put the PhD there because that's the way Zoom wants you to do it. And I have professional meetings that I have to do that for professional reasons. Anyway, it's a question of what are the specific activities? My point is that the spirit behind what you're doing right. is the same, which is to complete the creation 
as a partner of God. But the, the specifics of that will vary depending on whether you live in the state of Israel or whether you live in the United States, for example, or perhaps in Great Britain or Australia. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. So I think this is, uh, uh, Merton brings up a really great point that I think one of the top 10 points of Jewish theology, if we had a list of 10, would most certainly be this notion that humanity is created as a partner with the divine to complete creation. That God did not create a perfect world. Uh, nature itself is not perfect, nor was the original creation, but rather God created an imperfect world and even a broken world that has sickness and suffering and, and problems and flaws. And our work is to be a partner in that completion. And that completion can be achieved in so many ways. And so here, I think Merton's point here to kind of bridge the gap between Australian and, and, and British and Israeli and North American Jewry and beyond in this enterprise creates a new, a new model. And I think we can now create a new binary that on the one hand, there are those who see the self as the ends in itself and those who see the collective. If the self is an ends in themselves, then um, there's no notion of, of, of kind of a, a collective redemption or a collective uh, partnership with the divine. It's merely potentially my own hedonism, my own actualization, my own pleasure and growth um, rather than a collective enterprise. But if the collective is our goal, if the collective is our goal, then we can think about how the collective can be better off whether it's capitalism or communism, whether it is, you know, through um, uh, this vehicle or that vehicle, the, you know, the religious or the secular. But then also the question becomes for the collective, is our striving for status quo? Is our striving to go back or is our striving to go forward? And here too, we see another tension that I can be a North American Jew, or I can be an Israeli Jew, where basically preservation or conservation is the only goal. We can call it Jewish continuity. All I want is Jews to survive. Now, Jews survive is a, is a great thing, but it's a pretty low bar for what the Jews are about. If all we want to do is survive, then what are we really here for, right? If we actually have a mission, if we actually have a mission that we're striving for, um, that we're trying to achieve collectively, then... Um, um, then we need to get beyond status quo and actually work towards that form of progress of what the Jewish people are here to try to achieve. And so what do we do in the, in the global arena when different people have different missions? We might embrace some universal ethic that everyone should live by. Or we might say that different nations with a little more moral relativism have different roles to play. And how do we kind of sing together in the chorus? or march together in the band when we have different um, offerings to bring. And so I really appreciate what Merton said because I was trying to put a little wedge between the diaspora and Israel by showing a little bit that we have different vehicles of progress. And yet Merton brings back the great point that actually once we view ourselves as, as Kalal Yisrael, as partners with the divine, then actually um, that kind of bridges some of those divides a bit. Now, Eileen writes in the side, just as the highest mitzvot, mitzvah is giving and not telling anybody about it. Right. Very interesting. All right. Someone else want to jump in here? Hey, Rabbi. Um, is there a, 
an issue, a common issue that the entire Jewish community can come together and come around that would rally behind to bring in some sort of progress and change? Like, is there a common issue where the entire Jewish community can agree upon? Okay, awesome question, Eddie. The question of could there be versus is there is fundamentally different. So before I get to your question of could there be, I'll, I'll, I'll answer the, the parallel question of is there? And the answer of is there is no. And in the 20th, the late 20th century, the answer was yes. There were two things that united the Jewish people. And that was Holocaust memory, memory, remembrance, and that was the building of the state of Israel. And for many um, uh, Jews over the age of 60, those are still the two animating meta-narratives, right? That what unites Jews is our collective oppression through the Holocaust and beyond, and our collective enterprise of building the state of Israel. For younger Jews, <clears throat> the Holocaust has been completely politicized by conservatives for their, for their uh, militaristic means and by liberals for their universalistic means in a way that no longer unites the Jews. And the state of Israel uh, has also been a divisive issue as that has been completely politicized as well. And so is there? No, I don't think there was. Now, if we went prior to the 20th century, the answer would have been even easier. It would have been God. It would have been Torah. But then come the Haskalah, come the Enlightenment, and Jews started to secularize and diversify and have many denominations. And Jews now disagreed on, is there a God? And who is that God? Even in the past, when there was debate about who is God, it was between the Hasidim and the Mishnagdim, or is between the Rambam and the, and the Kabbalists, there was still some unity, uh, even at times when there was kind of an illusion of unity, still, some, still there was an illusion of unity people held. So we have early notion of God and Torah. Then we have Israel and the Holocaust. Now, fast forward to the 21st century. We have no unifying themes of the global Jewish community. None, we have none. And so, yes, there are some pockets of the Jewish community that construct an artificial notion of unity, right? In their little pocket, they say um, they might argue that there is unity, but the global Jewish people does not have that. So how could there be, to, to any question, could there be unity? And here I would say it would not be on an issue. It would not be on an issue, but rather on a, uh, a, 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 a vehicle or a process. One might say Hebrew. Now we lost the war of Hebrew. People used to say, even if we disagree on everything, as long as we disagree in Hebrew, then we have a shared language. But the vast, vast majority of diaspora Jews um, don't know any Hebrew. They, they took a Sunday school. And so they maybe know 10 words and they know how to say a hundred more, but don't know what they mean. And so we don't have a shared language. And so many have tried to have a Hebrew renaissance to say every Jew should learn to speak Hebrew, but that's been unsuccessful for, for many reasons. And we're actually going the opposite way. Sunday schools more and more are doing away with any Hebrew, finding it's alienating the kids and are moving towards values instead of Hebrew. The other possible answer aside from Hebrew is a meta concept of, of obligation or responsibility that what makes us Jewish is our fundamental obligation and responsibility, whether we view that responsibility as, as Torah or as conscience or as um, 
based on Jewish history, we have a shared obligation. Now that is still hard to build a bridge. That is still hard to build a bridge. So the last option may be, because it certainly is not Jewish tradition, maybe unique holidays. We know, we know that, let me pull up this actual number here. Um, there are only a few holidays that um, most Jews participate in. And, um, um, and the others are mostly not participated in. Uh, but uh, oh, it's not easily coming up here. Uh, here we go. Here we go. That the three most popular things that Jews and those who love Jews do are Seder, Pesach Seder, Yom Kippur, and Bar Bat Mitzvah. Now, this may have changed in the last five years. Um, I haven't seen a study, but in the most recent study, once again, the three most popular things that Jews and those who love Jews do are go to a Seder, go to Yom Kippur, and participate in a Bar Bat Mitzvah. Now, that's very interesting. So if that's true, then those three could be have the greatest potentials, even though everyone's Seder looks different, Kol Nidre looks different, sounds different, and most certainly Barbat Mitzvahs look different. Those three could have the greatest potential. You know, people would have thought it was it was Hanukkah. People are going to light the menorah, right? But um, uh, because we see it all over social media, it feels so easy. It's the easiest holiday because all you got to do is buy some candles and light it. It's so easy. Seder is so hard. I mean, Seder is the hardest one. You got to buy so much. You got to prepare so much. You got to know so much. But those are also possible vehicles towards could there be unity? So ultimately, I think unity is a helpful illusion. It is an illusion that sustains the Jewish people. Some notion that we are Achdut Yisrael, we are Am Yisrael, that we are one community, but is a total illusion, even though it's a helpful illusion. If if I could just say something else, because yeah, I'm from that generation that definitely the state of Israel, the Holocaust, but the other one was ru saving Russian Jewry and then saving Syrian Jewry. And I'm not sure that that would be a thing now. Like I would have thought that there would be a lot more Jews in diaspora who would be pushing to save the rest of the Ethiopian Jews, even if they're Falashmura, meaning that they were the ones who were forcibly converted to Christianity and Israel's not pulling its weight with bringing them in. But I don't know, any ideas? And Do you think I'm wrong? Or is there really just apathy towards saving the rest of Jews throughout the world? Oh yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for that. So I think you're totally right that Soviet Jewry was such a fascinating enterprise because it was the first time um, in North American um, uh, Jewish identity that that Jewishness entered the public sphere in such a profound way. Well, it's obviously true that significant numbers of Jews participated in the 1960s civil rights movement and um, in America, and that um, North American Jews have participated in all kinds of movements for, uh, since they've been here, that that level of Jewish pride in the streets was very unique and that it was particularly about uh, a particularistic Judaism. When you're advocating for black people in the 60s, you're not advocating for Jews. Yeah, you might be doing it as a Jew, 
but you're not fighting for Jews in the civil rights movement, even though even though Jewish security was was tied up with black security in some profound ways. After 1967 and the profound shift in um, global Jewish confidence that Jews are going to make it because of the miracles of the 1967 war. Jew and uh, and um, Jews now were willing to leverage their power for Jewish interests in new ways, and the Soviet Jewry movement, as as it was manifest, um, was such an interesting model of that. And there was so much unity around that: liberals and conservatives, um, reform and orthodox people marched together and stood together in ways that were uh, you wouldn't find today uh, in in many ways. Um, and now, fast forward, as Lauren mentioned, um, what about other vulnerable Jews around the world today? Um, and why don't we see that same thing? And once again, unfortunately, that's been politicized as well uh, around uh, the, the Jewish status of Soviet Jews. Now, on the one hand, all the Jews back them. On the other hand, now the state of Israel kicks them to the curb. They don't have a pathway to conversion. They're not allowed to marry they don't have a status of Jews and they can't convert, they can't marry, so they're stuck. So there was such a rallying for Soviet Jews, but where's the rallying for Russian Jews today, whether they identify as Christian or as secular or as Jewish, where, where is that today? And then you get to Ethiopia, you get to Uganda, you get to other Jews who are vulnerable, you get to the countless Jews that were expelled by Arab countries, Jews that were expelled by countless Arab countries, and um, now live in poverty in Israel, and who are vulnerable in many other parts of the world as well, um, where there's very high risk. Just today, uh, the JNF in the United Kingdom said there's no future. There's no future for Jews in the United Kingdom. Now, to some, that might sound totally crazy. Um, to others, that might sound right. But if you read about it, I, I read it in the, the report just, the, just this morning, that this particular scholar said, there is, in the long term, there's no future for Jews here. Um, now, you hear that, that language coming out of France. You don't hear that out of the UK so much in the same way. Um, so it's an interesting, it's an interesting time. Um, and, um, uh, and so anyways, Lauren, thank you for that point around some of that recent history. Okay, any, anyone else? Well, Rabbi, I think we could have a discussion or a session on, is our goal everyone to have the same views and the same beliefs or is diversity a strength? Because it seems to me, if you're talking about that we all are lockstep in faith, you can get to what to me is considered the extreme in the Haredi world, where there is no tolerance for difference and where many of us may not even be considered Jewish. So I think that in and of itself could be a, a, a meaningful debate or discussion. Great, great. So, Michael, thank you for that. It used to be that um, um, that that even with some diversity, there was some there were some things holding us together. My only concern, while I would completely celebrate the diversity of thought and of values, um, that how will we how will we um, have some intersections between these different micro Jewish communities that do kind of bring us together in some shared sense. And what's the value of that? How can we hold on to the diversity and the unity simultaneously? And I think you're right. In some pockets, uh, I think there's a lack of tolerance in the far left political world and the far right political world for people who stray from their viewpoints. And um, and I think we saw um, I think we saw 
a, a lot of liberals in the Jewish Orthodox world who became extremely alienated, alienated as, um, as Jewish Orthodoxy became clear it was going to be a far-right political phenomenon. And we saw a lot of conservative-leaning Jews very alienated from liberal Jewish communities when they saw you could not be a Trump supporter. Um, you could not be a Trump supporter and be welcome in our reform temple, right? And so, um, and so we found an interesting point where being a non-Orthodox Jew became synonymous with being liberal values and being an Orthodox Jew became synonymous with, with being a Trumper um, or, or at least be leaning conservative. And all of a sudden it was another kind of a, politi a politicization of the American Jewish people that Netanyahu and Trump did no service to the Jewish people, in my view, um, uh, uh, in, 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 in helping to bring us together. And so how do we come out of that? We already have denominational differences, and then we have political differences, and then we have our full diversity that Black Jews want to unite around being Black Jews, and Asian Jews want to be together, and Ashkenazi Jews want to be together, and Spartac Jews, and Reformed Jews, and Orthodox Jews, and everyone wants their little micro-community um, and, uh, and yet, how do we say there's, a, there, there's something shared here? Hold your beliefs, but there's something in common. So Michael, I, I, I appreciate that point a lot. And then, and then let's go a step further. Now, the question of how wide do we make the tent? And according to some who are pro-intermarriage, they say rabbis should um, perform intermarriages and our community should fully welcome interfaith couples. Um, and um, and the, chil the children, whether they identify as Jewish or not, should be fully embraced. And others say, no, we want to have Jewish community. We want to be respectful to Gentiles, but we don't want to conflate the boundary between Gentiles and Jews. We, if somebody intermarries, we will be respectful to them, but the Gentile partner is not a member of the Jewish community. And so that's one of the debates going on as well, as is there unity among the Jewish community? But then who is actually in the Jewish community and who is peripheral to it? And one camp says total inclusivity. And the other camp says there needs to be some boundaries to maintaining identity. Yes, Eileen. Well, if in fact we decide in our temples that the intermarried Gentiles have no part in it, we're gonna lose all of our committee chairs we're going to lose our vice presidents. We're going to lose this one and that one. Um, I think the better way is to be inclusive. If, in fact, you're in an interreligious relationship, you probably demonstrate Jewish values more by being open and accepting rather than closing off. And that probably goes a lot further um, than the other way. And you probably can speak to that as a result of your own background. Would, would you have preferred to have been ostracized? No, I don't think so. Yeah, great points, Eileen. So here's another case where the zeitgeist among um, the most traditional Jews and the more liberal Jews, the, the conversation are totally foreign to each other. Totally foreign. If you're in an orth if you're in an Orthodox community, there's not even a conversation about like 
being welcoming in an intermarriage context. Like maybe in the most liberal of orthodoxy, they would say like, all right, well, you shouldn't embarrass someone or shame someone. You can most certainly be friendly to them. Like you should still invite them to your Shabbos table. But like the idea of an Orthodox rabbi ever considering performing an intermarriage or ever making a committee chair, the Gentile partner, or giving an aliyah to the Gentile partner or whatever the case is, would be so like, it's not even on the radar. And as Eileen is saying, in a reformed temple, it would be so absurd to not be inclusive. Like, as you said, you're going to lose your committee chairs. You're going to lose half the congregation. Like, like the numbers are, it's, it, I mean, I think the most recent numbers I saw was outside of orthodoxy in America. It's somewhere like 79 or 80% are, are now choosing intermarriage. There's, you know, it's, it, you would literally lose the whole community if you, if you, if, and the notion of exclusivity would be so offensive. Like, why would you not be inclusive? This is who we are. And so this is another case where, like, th literally the conversation is as, st as, as starkly different as it would be, like, going to a, a Peace Now versus an APAC conference. Like, it's like different planets, you know, or going into a secular Israeli coffee shop and going into B'nai Brak Yeshiva, you know, or going into, like, like Ben the Ark, a Jewish pluralistic, you know, fellowship for young Jews in their 20s. And then going into, you know, Yeshiva University's fellowship program. Like, there's like the, the actual language of what we're doing is so fundamentally different. Now, I have a deep interest in, in building bridges. I have a deep interest in helping us understand these different sides. Not that we have to agree with them, but just to understand like how these different worlds and micro communities of the Jewish people um, add value, how each of these adds value to one another. Okay, friends, we need to pause here, unfortunately, but next week, we are going to be up to debate number 32 out of 40, and that is zealousness versus tolerance. Zealousness versus tolerance. Now, you might obviously say, oh, I'm a tolerant Jew. I'm not a zealot, right? But actually, it's a little complicated. The, the Jewish history and the current relationship between uh, kina, uh, between um, uh, zealotry and tolerance has a rich debate, and we will explore that next week. Wishing everyone a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.